Hello, everyone. How are you doing? And welcome to another episode of the Dr. Will Show, where we have the discussions that inform, entertain, and empower educators to be the change. I'm your host, Dr. Will, and I am here today with someone who is no stranger uh, to us fellow educators, Pernil Rip. How are you doing, Pernil? I am well, Dr. Will. How are you? I'm doing quite well. Thanks for asking. Uh, this will be the last Dr. Will show of uh, this year. And next year, be on the lookout for some things. I can't tell you, but it's going to be good. <laughs> uh, we will be talking about Pernille's, uh latest book, uh, which for those of you who follow her or have seen her at conferences, you know that literacy and students are very uh, important to her, and uh, this is going to be a great conversation. So I'm just going to ask Pernille to introduce herself, and then we are going to just jump into this. So for some reason, Pernille, if there is an educator alive who does not know who you are, will you please introduce yourself? Sure. There's plenty. <laughs> That's all right. I am a seventh grade English teacher in Oregon, Wisconsin, which is right outside of Madison. Get to hang out with my amazing seventh graders every day. And then on, uh, at home, I get to be the mom to four crazy, insane children. And I get to speak and I get to write books. And I also created the Global Read Aloud, a global literacy initiative that has connected more than 4 million kids around the world since 2010. Um, but really, I'm, I'm just a teacher on a journey, much like everybody else. And about seven years ago, I started writing about that journey because I had too many thoughts in my head. And so here I am today. I have four books out and they are basically my thoughts and the thoughts of my incredible students who have so much to say about how we can do education better. Um, so, yeah, I'm fairly Googleable. There isn't a lot of perennial rips in North America, it turns out. Yes. So your latest book is Passionate Readers. What was the pain point behind writing the book? Um, I didn't want to write this book um, because I didn't feel like I had the right to. I have uh, grown up as a teacher following the wisdom of all of these incredible pioneers that have come before me. Um, Nancy Atwell, Lucy Calkins, uh, Dick Allington, Donalyn Miller, Penny Kittle, all of these people. And I didn't think that my voice needed to be heard. And yet every day when I would go into my classroom and talk to my students about their reading identities and the reading journeys they had been on, they had so much sage advice and so many truths that really shook me to my teaching core about how I was doing reading instruction. And so the book started kind of writing itself. And I felt like here was an opportunity for my students to have these really simple pieces of advice, but that could really shake up literacy instruction, be known to a wider audience. And so I think of the book as this pillar for my kids to get a bigger voice to the world. And then I started writing and it was hard. It was really hard because with reading, of course, you can't just go out there and say, well, this is what I think. You have to go back. You have to look at best practices. You have to look at the research. And you also have to pay homage to all the people that have paved the way for you. So it took a long time to write this book. And yet when I look at it now and I see the book, I'm so proud of it because I think, think to myself, it's not a system. But it's just, it's a personal journey of this is what my students taught me. And maybe you can get advice from them. And maybe you can also become a better teacher of reading. Uh, and, and one that all students deserve and need. Mm. 
So in your book, you wrote about the teacher reading identity. What is it and why does it matter? Well, I grew up as a reader. My mom uh, was the one that centered our reading lives. I still remember many fond memories that involved reading in my childhood. And yet I don't remember those same memories from school. I grew up in Denmark and in Denmark, our reading instruction was quite different than the one here in the U.S. And so when I became a teacher, I started out as a fourth grade teacher. I knew the basics of the literacy program but I didn't realize that my own identity as a reader was something that I needed to really look at because it was completely informing the way I was shaping the reading experiences of my students. I figured, stupidly so, that my kids all had these reading role models in their lives, that they knew how to uh, create reading moments in their own lives outside of school because that's what I was raised with. I had had this incredible foundation in my mom. And, uh, and that it, it just wasn't true. Even my kiddos who had access to book, who, who had parents who loved to read, didn't have necessarily strong reading models. And so it wasn't until I, I came back from maternity leave and I, and I started noticing that all my students were asking to go to the library, the school library. And we had a classroom library. And I was like, why, why do they keep wanting to go to the school library? I mean, I loved our librarian, but it was so urgent for them. And one of the kids finally said to me, well, Mr. Powers is there and he speaks books to us. And I thought about that, that Mr. Powers, the incredible school librarian that we had, he was a reading role model for these kids. He knew these kids when they would walk into his library and he would hand them a stack of books and say, I thought of you when I read this. And I thought to myself, I can't do that. Even though I'm a reader, I, I identify as a reader, I didn't have that portion of my identity in the classroom. I didn't read children's books. Um, and so my students pretty much said, you don't speak books, so you can't speak with us. And I started to think about how my own reading experience had truly shaped all the instructional decisions I was making. And then I started thinking about the reading rights that I took for granted as an adult, such as you can abandon a book at any point. And how I wasn't extending those rights to my students because for some reason I thought that their rights were different because they were emerging readers. And so I think about teacher reading identity now and how much it can really play into all of the small decisions we make, whether we're faced with a curriculum or whether we're faced with, with a lot of freedom like I am in my position now. Um, but how it shapes all of those little things. Do we give them the time to read? Do we give them actual choice, free choice, not just choice for some or limited choice or you earn choice as you get better? Do we allow them the right and the freedom to abandon books? Do we think about what we want to do once we find a book that we love and we read it and then extend those same experiences to the, to the kids? I think about what Donalyn Miller and Terry Lassane have been talking about and how they say that a lot of the time when we read, all we want to do is sit in silence afterwards. We don't want to write a paragraph or analyze the book or, or even stand up and review it in front of others. Sometimes we just want to sit in the, in the silence of the book and have that moment. And so becoming aware of my own teacher reading identity, going on the same journey as my students, enforcing the same rights uh, that I had taken for myself and giving those to my students really changed how I thought about my reading instruction. And that was even within a curriculum-based literacy environment. So it wasn't just like, oh, I could do whatever I wanted, but that was still going, okay, within the components of this program, how can I give my students actual freedom and in turn start exploring their reading identity because they weren't. I mean, they were growing as readers, but they didn't know who they were as readers. And so that's become a central tenant of our reading experience together now. 
Mm. And, and, and you just spoke about something that is a great segue to the next question. So how does someone's physical space actually influence their own reading experience? Well, it's huge. And I didn't, I mean, I knew what to do when I started out as a teacher. I knew we needed a classroom library. I knew, knew we needed a gathering space. And yet there were so many other things that the kids didn't have the right to. You know, there wasn't freedom of, of choice to where they sat or, or even who they were sitting by. We had this helicopter rule that you had to stretch your arms out. As long as you could touch anyone, you could sit there in the room. And, and now I realize that kids read in different ways, right? I, I think of one of my kiddos from a long time ago, Zoe, she would create a nest under her desk. And at first I was like, well, I think she's trying to get away from me. But no, that was her comfort space. She wanted to read under her desk away from other people because they were distracting. And so now I think about my classroom, which is nothing fancy. We've got, you know, old yoga balls and some chairs and some really ratty old bean bags. And, but when you walk in, you see books. And you see all sorts of books. We're covered in picture books. In fact, just before I, I came home for break, I, re I started out our Caldecott unit. So when my students walk in next week, they're going to see these Caldecott contenders all around the room. You know, you can tell that the classroom that you're in is meant to be book-centered, reading-centered. But then I also think about what my students have told me, that it's not about how your classroom looks. It's how it feels. And so for a lot of my students, they tell me that the biggest thing that we can do for kids if we want them to feel accepted in our classroom is to make it feel safe and is to make it feel calm. And so that's what I strive for. And I think for my students to come into a classroom knowing that they have the power to move the furniture, to sit with whom they would like, um, to really use the tools that we have in the classroom and then also have all of these books calling out to them at all times has made the biggest difference. Um, and there's research out there on it too, that we need classroom libraries as well as, as school libraries with you know, fully certified school librarians in them. We need both to really have kids completely and consistently surrounded by books so that they know that there's a sense of urgency to being a reader. And that there's all these experiences waiting for them at their at their fingertips. And I was just thinking, I'll be writing about it at some point because I've been doing, you know, what's now called flexible seating for the last seven or eight years, and that's been around for a long time. And the thing is, flexible seating, as far as you know, having having different ways for students to use the furniture, is not really revolutionary because anyone can throw yoga balls into their classroom. But what you need for flexible seating to be successful is flexible thinking. And I think about how often do we limit the choices within our class and consistently remind kids that they are not the ones in control, that you are the one in control, that you make all of the decisions. Um, and so do we have the mindset that allows kids to come into, into the shared space and say, this is also your space and use it in a way that makes sense for you. And let's figure out how to use it best together. So, and I ask my students all year, how do you learn best? And that includes manipulating the classroom. And for some, it's a pretty easy journey. And for some, it takes a really long time. They have to go through some bad decisions with who they're sitting by or where they're sitting and, and how they're using the things in the classroom to figure out that that's not how they learn best. And then we pick up the pieces from there and go on. Mm -hmm. So now I want to throw this out there to you because <clears throat> reading instruction generally speaking, within the United States is uh, very structured, 
very based upon some sort of curriculum that a district has purchased uh, students. Uh, for ex and one of the examples that I see, and if, if you if you want to speak to that, you know, please do so. That I find to be just terrible is okay. You get the short passage. You read the short passage. Now you fill out this chart, or you do this. Now, if you're checking for a close read, a short passage, and a couple of questions are fine. But when you're talking about building reading endurance, and you're and you're really talking about kids falling in love with reading, I, I just find that to be you know just a terrible practice. So, knowing that this is happening with with teachers across the country, and teachers read your book. They read your books, they read your blog posts, and they're saying, Pernille, there's just so much I want to do. I believe in what you're saying, but my hands are tied because this is what our reading program says we need to do. When we are evaluated, this is what they're looking for. When the instructional coach from the school or the district comes in, they're looking for me to do this. What is your advice for them? And, and will you speak to how this can reading curriculum is not sort of the best way mm -hmm. to make kids fall in love with reading or build reading endurance and even, you know, make them flourish as readers. Yeah, that's a multifaceted question, but I think the biggest thing for me when I think about what we need to create in our classrooms is sometimes we're faced with curricular decisions that seem to make no sense. And so we need to know our research because how often are we as teachers confronted or not confronted that seems very angry but given curriculum that we are told is research-based well then I want to see the research because I'll show you mine as well because there are years of research out there that talks about the components that kids need to have a successful reading instruction experience and those include like you said longer passages those include the right to build stamina and endurance through a self-selected self text with supports in place. Those include time to read, eyes on meaningful self-selected text. And it also includes teachers who are knowledgeable and know how to navigate this journey with kids. And so I think for teachers who are faced with these curriculum, we need to go back to the research. I think of the researcher Louise Rosenblatt, who spoke about how we need two components to a reading program. We need reading for um, um, skill and we need reading for pleasure. And yet what have we done in the last 20 or so years? It has been all skill-based. And then we wonder why kids leave us and, and are rejoicing that they never have to pick up another book to do something with it. Um, but the practicality is also that sometimes our hands are tied as teachers and sometimes we, we cannot do anything about the programs that we use, but then we have to start courageous conversations. And I also think that we need to include those at home, the caregivers, the parents, anyone who's at home, because I think about how much trust we put in the school system to make good decisions for our kids. But if we don't let parents in on what our reading instruction looks like, then they can't be knowledgeable about that. And so I think it's parents and caregivers are an incredible ally in changing reading instruction. And then I think we also need to find the courage ourselves to say, wait a minute, this can certainly be a component of our reading instruction, but it can't be the only thing. Um, and I think there's a lot of great programs out there that are trying to shift, shift the tide and has been for a long time. 
And we need to introduce those programs because there's nothing inherently wrong with a program as long as we're allowed to cater it to each child's needs. And I think that's often what's taken away from teachers. I know I was told at one point that I had to teach a program with fidelity and which is at least, you know, one of my least favorite F words in the whole world. The thing is my kids are not going to be like the kids in that book that that curriculum is based on. I need to have the autonomy to go, this is what my students need. And then we also start to need to look at our own decisions, not just look at the administrative decisions based on curriculum, but also all of the little decisions that we make as teachers ourselves. Because there's a lot of decisions that we make even within these scripted programs that end up really harming kids' love of reading. And I think it's too easy sometimes to blame the program, yet if we're not raising our voices and saying anything about it, how is administration supposed to know? And so we reflect on ourselves, we reflect on our own practices, we start asking questions, we can do that kindly, we know our research, and then we start to say this is what a kid needs. And bottom line, if a reading program is harming even the love of reading for just one child, then we need to be questioning that program, not the child and not the practitioner that has to put the kid through it. And I think too, that that doesn't mean our questioning doesn't mean that we throw everything out. It just means that maybe that program doesn't work for that child. And that's really important. I think we really need to get back to the heart of differentiation, especially within our reading instruction to say, what does this child need to have a successful reading experience both one, yes, where they can comprehend and decode and do all of the things that we need to do with reading, but also so that they will leave here wanting to read, wanting to find their own books, um, and, and wanting to better themselves. And so uh, it's, it's hard. I'm not going to lie. The conversations are hard. It's hard, especially when you feel like nobody's listening, but we can't give up because this is truly the future of our country and the future of our world that we're talking about. I mean, I'm terrified at the Pew research that keeps coming out about adults who, do, who choose not to read, you know, 26%, 28% choose not to read a book um, once they graduate high school. That's crazy to me. So. Yes. Yes. That's a different, uh, that's a different topic. So, because uh, uh, it makes me think about, our current leadership. Um, there's, you know, you, you have on Twitter and on your blog, you know, you have put out information about your library and looking for these type of books or these are books that you're reading and you're introducing to your, your students. When building a class library, what sort of learning outcomes or experiences should a teacher consider? And where does diversity and inclusion come into play with the selection of books? Oh, that's a big question. Um, we start with amazing books and we start with stopping our assumptions about what our kids need and really looking at who is represented in our classroom library and how are they represented and who's not. And then we start to remedy those holes. When I looked around my classroom library um, a couple of years ago, I was standing in a classroom with one of my, my black kids and he said, Mrs. Rick, why are all the picture books about slavery or civil rights when it has kids like me in it? And I thought to myself, that's it, right? Like he just hit the nail on the head. Where are the picture books about black kids like him doing everyday things? Um, and, and it really forced me once again, um, 
because, you know, once again, to reevaluate how am I doing? But then I also think of my really smart friend, Chad Everett's words about how we need to stop talking about diversity. And because he talks about how when we say we need diverse books, for example, then once again, we are saying that white books are the norm, that everything else is diverse, but that white is the norm. And then once again, we're telling kids that, 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 that white is the average. And so I think I've thought about that too, because then like, what language do we use to talk about how we need better libraries that represent all people? And so when it comes to my, my own library, I, I, I deeply believe in, in Dr. Rudin Sims uh, Bishop's work about windows and mirrors and, and, and just really looking at what stories are being represented to my students as the normal stories of life. Can they find themselves? Because that is important, but more importantly, can their, can their window be broadened? Can they be brought into other worlds? And so that they can start to uh, see that there's more to, to life than just what they know. And, and also that um, start to ask questions and be curious about other people and other experiences. And I think that that's so important. And while that can get scary, depending on where you teach, I think it's a small risk that I can take to make sure that my students have a bigger understanding of the world because I'll never tell my kids what to read, but I sure want to make sure that they can find themselves and, and can also um, learn about others through my library. And I think about the reading experience I just had last night. I was reading an advanced review copy of Varian Johnson's newest book that's coming out in March called The Parker Inheritance. Um, it's a middle grade novel, mystery just so it's such a great book and yet in it he has all of these other layers while it's a mystery it also talks about racial racial segregation in the 1950s and the 1960s but then there was this one scene at the end of the book and I don't want to spoil it but it was a scene where I had not seen that type of representation before in a middle grade book and it was such a minor detail and I thought to myself this is so powerful for that kid who has never seen this before in any book that they have picked up before. And that's what I mean when I think about the experiences that my students need to have with a book. They should have a heart connection and, and they should be able to find themselves. But my goodness, they also need to be able to find other people in those books. Mm. And so that's a great segue to the next question because you know you have been very vocal about your experiences uh, as an immigrant and as a, a white person in this country. Um, and so when you are building your library and selecting these authors uh, of color, what do you think your white students get out of reading these experiences that are outside of their own? My biggest hope is that they, they, that they start to understand that the way that there were I, white privilege. I mean, I, I think about that all the time as a white immigrant to this country, how many things I have taken for granted that were not given as rights to other people. And I wish I would have realized that sooner in my life. And so in a way, I hope that for my students that reading books about other types of experiences than their own or with characters that do not look like them or think like them, that it will get them to question some of the societal expectations and rules that we seem to take for granted 
yet have completely been constructed by human beings and then do something about changing that. And I know that that sounds really big and philosophical, but I just think about like the seeds that we can plant within our classroom library for kids to know more and do more and do better than we have done. And I think um, about uh, how we, we as a society end up thinking like, well, there's nothing I can do. These, these structures, these societal structures are in place. It's going to take hundreds of years to unravel. And yet, when we do that, we dismiss that we could actually change things now. And that, yes, it's going to be really hard work. And yes, it's going to be painful. And yes, it's going to be, you know, you're going to end up making a complete fool out of yourself like I've done on many occasions when I've tried to help and, and not help. But that we cannot assume that everything is ingrained in stone and that it's just this big unseen force. And so when I think about the experience that my students can have in our library, I want them to start asking questions and I want them to start questioning their assumptions because if they, if, if they don't, then it's not going to change. Mm. I see this is a little bit off topic, but related. Uh, you talk about that. I'm always mindful of, you know, there are certain big names in our field. There are awesome people. I and mean, some people, some of these people I actually call friends, and, and they write books and they talk about innovation and they talk about doing this to the schools, but these people don't teach at the schools or have not taught at the schools or have not led schools that look like the ones that I work at or where other folks work at. So it's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, like you may have this audience, you know what I'm saying? But when I hear your things, it does not filter in to my reality of this school district, mm -hmm. you know, and I know you wrote about that innovation <laughs> in one of your, in your blog posts as well. And I mentioned, actually mentioned that what you wrote about in one of uh, a podcast interview that I was in. Um, so, you know, in K through 12, everyone has heard about AR books. Mm -hmm. And for those of you who, for some reason may listen to this podcast, you are not in, in K through 12 and do not have a child. It's essentially a program by uh, written learning and kids get these books. These books are leveled based upon Lexiles and they read a book and they take this test and they earn these points and schools or whatever, give them, you know, prizes, certificates, etc. cetera. Um, and, you know, schools do this, they, they, it's not a bad purpose behind it. I mean, they're trying to drive kids uh, to read. Uh, in the latter part of your book, and, and this is where this comes into it, you know, you write, you wrote about student reading identity. So I know you kind of touched on that earlier, but what is it and how can teachers work with students in making reading more personal to students? I can tell you it's hard. It's super hard work. And I think you mentioned programs like Accelerated Reader or other computer programs, and it ties in with the scripted curriculum, too. We are constantly looking for easy solutions to really hard problems. And, and then we assume that just because we can show short-term growth through these programs that we have then changed a child's reading life. And for some kids, maybe we have. That's the thing. Some of these programs may work beautifully for a child, but I keep hearing 
horror stories from parents and from teachers and from kids talking about how some of these programs have destroyed their reading life about how it all of a sudden only becomes about the points or the test or the reward, how they're not allowed to go and check out a book from the library because it doesn't fit into the program or into the test, how they keep failing the test even though they've read the book, how the authors are failing the test even though they've read the book. And I think to myself, is this really what we have distilled reading down to? Test taking, doing something with what they're reading when nothing could be further from the truth. Yes, we need to be able to say that we can comprehend and decode and analyze, but at the same time too, becoming a reader is about becoming a better human being. It's about becoming more curious. And so if we completely dismiss that and only focus on teaching these skills and constantly have kids doing something about with their reading, then we're just dismissing the entire human experience of reading. And so when I think about my students' reading identity, when I ask them on the first or second day of school, who are you as a reader? And they look at me and they're like, what are you talking about? I think to myself, that's it, isn't it? Our kids can maybe say, well, I'm a reader who likes to read and these are the types of books I, I read, but they don't know how reading maybe changes them. Some do. They've made it through our system, maybe through incredible teachers or parents or themselves, and somehow become this fully developed reader and others look at us like we're crazy. And so we have to start with what the kids are telling us. Who are you as a reader? And if a child tells us, I hate reading, then instead of saying, well, you haven't found the right book yet, then we start with, tell us more. You know, tell me more about that. What makes you hate reading? Because it just means that they don't know who they are as a reader. And then I think about the patience that we have to apply to our own uh, experiences with these kids too. I was just talking to a friend in November about how, you know, it'd been a couple of months of, of choice and time to read and conferring and all of these great components. And yet there were kids who weren't reading. And, and then what, you know, what was the next step? And I thought to myself, hang on, I get it, right? We want, we want to see change right away. And for some of these kids, we're up against years of, of, of ingrained habits of who they're not as a reader, of negative reading identity. And so for me, I tell my students all the time, I'm not here to make you love reading. I'm here to make you hate it a little bit less. And that has been really important for some of my kids who otherwise would prove me wrong just because if I said I'm here to make you love it. And so student reading identity is vital to this. Students need to know who they are as reader and who they, who they want to be and how they want to grow to be that reader. Um, and even if it's a kid that says, I hate reading, okay, well, let's see if we can chip away at that a little bit. Have you ever had an, a joyful experience with a book? Um, and so that's where we start, and that guides our instructional decisions. I think of the two, three-minute conferences I have with my students throughout the week while they're independently reading and, and how it leads me, gives me insight into who they are as readers and what I need to still continue to talk to them about. Um, we, are, we have to be teaching reading with urgency and we have to protect uh, the love of reading that some kids bring to us. And then we have to continually try to, to help kids uh, find a, of some sort of like or love of reading within our classrooms. And we can't do that if we don't know who the kid is in front of us. We can't do that if we dismiss the reading truths that they bring to us as part of their reading identity. We can't do that if we tell a kid like that book is too easy. You can't read it. I think about how transformed some of my students' reading lives have become of, because of books that others would label too easy for seventh graders. Um, and, and, and so just like we need uh, personalized learning, 
we need personalized reading instruction. And that really just means that we need to center it in on that person who's sitting in front of us. And that is that child. And that's the problem with some of these programs. They don't factor in the kid. All they do is factor in their algorithms. They only make the kid into data, but a kid isn't data. A kid is everything, you know, data is part of it for sure. We can't dismiss that, but we also need to know who they are, what their circumstances are, um, what they go home to, um, what their classroom experience is like, and, and also how they can find that piece that you need to actually allow yourself to be a reader. Mm. For Neil, if I had some tea, I'd take a sip right now. <laughs> that was right. Um, before we go, I want your call to action for schools who continue to buy programs and set up classroom structures that are based upon fidelity mm-hmm. of a reading program and, and not about, you know, books that will take a student on a journey for experience, self-reflection, and just getting out of the way, you know, cause I, I've been in classes where, and you've lived it where you have this program, they say fidelity, you know, you do this for so many minutes a day, but your block is only so many minutes a day. Mm -hmm. So how do you get that book in Mm -hmm. for students to read? How do you make time for them to do that? So what do you say to schools who, as you say, are are really trying to put, you know, a a bandaid on a knife wound (laughs) and are not, thinking long-term beyond the data of what they're seeing? Uh, uh, It sounds so simple, but go back and ask the students. Get the students to be a part of the conversation about the curricular choices that are being made. How do they feel about the different components? And you ask those questions differently depending on the student's age, and then you do something with what they tell you. I constantly change my reading instruction approach because of what my students are telling me. And then also reflect deeply on the choices that you're making as the adult in the room, whether you're the administrator or the superintendent or the, or the teacher or the coach, how are the decisions that you are making affecting the reading and instruction and reading experience that the students are having. Where does the power lie within you? So even if you're met with shut doors or slammed doors sometimes, right, where people say we're not going to question this program, we've already invested so much money into it. I mean, I think Accelerated Readers is about at least $10,000 a year. I think about how many books that could be. That's crazy. Um, But when we're faced with those slammed doors, then look at ourselves. What can I change? How can I change what my students are going through? How can I start a broader conversation? How can we have those courageous conversations? And then don't give up because sometimes we are standing against years of bad decisions. And, and it, it, but if we don't speak up, if we don't reflect, if we don't start asking questions, nothing is going to change. And so I think we start by asking questions, ask the students, Ask those at home who get the experience from the child coming home. Ask each other and ask ourselves, what type of experience are we truly creating here? And where is our end goal? Because I've seen a lot of schools with really amazing vision statements that are not following their vision statements within their own uh, curricular decisions. And I'll quote my assistant superintendent, Leslie Bergstrom, because she's amazing in Oregon. And she always says that 
we do not have fidelity to the program. We have fidelity to the kid. And I think that's it for me. I want to be in a system where we have fidelity to the kid and the type of experience they need, not to some outsider program who has never set foot in my classroom, who may have some, some good components to it, but who is not there with me every single day trying to be a better teacher with these kids. And I think that goes back to your innovation question too. Like, I never set out passionate readers was never meant to be a teach like Perneal book. It was meant to be a reflection book. How can you reflect on your own experiences and what changes can you make that will make you a better teacher in your environment? Because there is no program that is going to fit every single classroom. And that's even just in like my city of Madison, you know, let alone the, the entire United States or North America or the world. And so we have to stop chasing this elusive program that is going to be the magic bullet for our kids and instead go back to best practices, choice in reading, time to read, reading communities, classroom libraries that reflect all of our students, even the students we don't have, and then just patience, patience and a love for what we're doing and realizing that we truly have this power to help these kids discover more about themselves than they knew when they came in. Awesome. Awesome. People, the book is Passionate Readers. Uh, thank you, Pernille, so much for being a guest on the show. Thank you for having me this morning. Uh, you are so welcome and so awesome. So people, you know how I do this around here. This is going up on SoundCloud and iTunes. Uh, I'll be sharing this out on LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook and everything. You're going to be able to find out how to be able to connect with Pernil on Twitter and go to her blog and look at all of the amazing work that she is doing. I, I still don't know how she's able to blog and write these books and travel the country doing all doing this speaking. Uh, maybe I just need to get me some a multivitamin or something going on because <laughs> uh, that's, that's just a lot of work. Uh, so people, as always, invest in you, edu. Peace.